So we've looked at the linguistic principle, we've looked at the contextual principle, we've looked at the historical principle. These are the most important principles in this approach. That's why it's called grammatical, historical, contextual. There's also a cultural principle. So let's take a look at this whole area of culture. Stated simply, the cultural principle is the cultural setting contributes to meaning. Almost the same as the historical principle, except instead of history, we have culture. And the two kind of go hand in hand, by the way. They're somewhat analogous. Within particular historical time frames, you have particular cultures that have come about. But rather than things relating to events and personages... What you're dealing with when you're dealing with culture are practices, lifestyles, things that people utilized in the home or how did people transport themselves, all of these issues of culture. How did they communicate? You know, our culture is different. They didn't have email back then. They didn't have text messages, those sort of things. But they communicated all the same. And apparently, for example, in New Testament, uh, they had the form of letters that we still, do we still? Maybe some Some people still send letters. (laughs) Not too long ago, uh, we could relate to that, but in at least New Testament times and perhaps earlier, letters was a form of communication. We'll talk a little bit about that some more when we talk about epistolary literature. But all of those elements, warfare, how did they conduct warfare, what were the weapons that were used, it would include even how does geography, in fact that's one of the first categories I'll I'll give you here as an example, how does geography contribute. I put geography, you could even do geography as a separate principle, but I've kind of lumped it under the cultural principle. And these are just some of the elements of the, the culture And like I said, geography is one thing that you need to take into account. Because oftentimes the geography dictated some of the other cultural elements. For example, if the geography relates to a place close to a body of water, the Sea of Galilee, for example, Capernaum in the New Testament, you have fishermen and you have boats and you have things related to the Sea of Galilee. You don't have all of that when you're dealing with the city of Jerusalem because the city of Jerusalem is away from a large body of water. So geography kind of dictates some of the cultural issues. You have different geographical setting in those areas. So it's important in some studies to find out where is the city of Jericho And if you're in the Old Testament and you're dealing with the conquest, this is the first city that was involved in the conquest. Where is it located? And why Why did the children of Israel cross at this point? And it might help you to understand the book of uh, Joshua. Just, Just the logistics involved in the geography there. And as it turns out, you find out the conquest began in this area because this was kind of a divider. And a military tactic is divide and what? Yeah, but you have to divide. If you can divide the force, then now it's easier to conquer. And that seems to be the strategy that God gave Joshua. If he could take the central part of Palestine, that would be strategic when he goes to the south and conquers the south, and then he conquers the north. And that gives you kind of a little outline of the book of Joshua, at least the uh, military aspect in the conquest. The point I'm making is geography has a big part to play in that. So understanding a little bit of what's going on, what's going on with the Dead Sea, some of the issues involved in it, and not on this map, but the Sea of Galilee, if you're dealing with this area. So geography has a place. In the Gospel of John, and we'll talk about another cultural issue in a moment, but here's Jerusalem 
Jesus and the apostles in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, they pass through, on this map, doesn't mention Shechem, but Shechem would be right here. They're going to the, the area of Galilee. This was not the typical, not the route that Jews usually took. Jews usually went either down south through Jericho along the Jordan River to get to the Sea of Galilee area, or they might go down into the uh, Shephelah and the coastal plain and avoid this area here and go to the Galilee area. Jesus chooses deliberately to take a more direct route through Sychar, and they have a little stop there and an encounter with a woman there. The geography not only plays a part on it, but some other cultural issues relating to Samaritans had a big part in that as well. And the customs and all of the issues of the Samaritans. So if you understand, well, who are these Samaritans and why is he talking to this woman? Why is he even talking to a woman? That's a cultural issue in itself. See all that? But some of it has to do with the geography as well, or the geography has an influence on it. So your geography, the politics... An example that comes to mind, a lot of the politics around surrounding the crucifixion, the arrests of the Lord Jesus Christ, the political intrigue, Pilate, what's going on with him, some of the cultural issues there. What were all the politics involved with that, with the situation of the crucifixion that ultimately ended in Christ dying on the cross? Remember, God is sovereign over all these events. He used all those events to get to the point in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon, Peter basically outlines that this was a predetermined plan, the crucifixion, yet man is responsible in his sin, and a lot of the political intrigue that took place had to do with the politics of the day of the first century and the politics in Jerusalem at that time. So politics has a big play. Hundreds of examples Back to Moses and all of the politics of Egypt and what was going on there and the plagues and the interaction with Pharaoh and what was the politics of the Pharaoh it's himself? What were the Egyptian attitudes to their their king, basically? Now, that's different than some other peoples. So, depending on the passage, you'll have different politics. Depending on the culture, you'll have different politics. Different time frames, different politics. In the time of Daniel, Daniel had to deal with a pagan king, not a Jewish king, and you have a different political system. You have a Persian kind of situation in some of those parts there. What's the sociology? That includes all of, a lot of those issues dealing with everyday life. What was going on in the upper room, and what, what was an upper room all about in that last supper? Did they have multi-story buildings or, you know, what was going on? Or even the law specifies to build a parapet around the roof there. And there seemed to be some cultural things in terms of what an upper room served as, even as far back as the time of Moses and certainly in the New Testament. So what were their buildings like and what went on in certain situations like that? Issues of sociology. See, the whole realm. I'm just giving you just real quick, easy kind of examples here. But, it, but the whole realm. Some of these things, you have to, you have to go to secular history. I mean, some of them. I, I mean, like, for instance... Uh, Archaeology and that sort of thing. Right. right. Archaeology, here is where archaeology is valuable in that it, it, it shows you exactly what a lamp was like that they used in the first century, for and example. Then, right. Exactly. And also the hieroglyphs. So that you can understand what the Egyptian uh, yes. kings were and that kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. In fact, this, in May, on my trip. It, it comes into play, and it, like I said, what's a cultural principle? It contributes to the meaning of a passage. It helps you understand what's going on there. In fact, a failure there, this just came to mind, Speaking of what we were just talking about, the failure there is a, contributed to some mistranslations. For example, in the book of Revelation, this example just came to mind. It refers to a seven stand, and King James translates it candlesticks, seven candlesticks. They didn't have candles 
in the first century. It uses the word lamps. And archaeology tells us how they lit rooms. They would have a little container that had a wick. You put oil in the container and you lit the wick. It was not a candle, but it had a wick. And that's why the King James mistranslates candlesticks when it refers to the uh, seven lampstands is what, the way you should translate it. So it was a failure because they didn't have all the archaeology we have today they were at a disadvantage, but now that we have that archaeology, now we know that that was probably not the best translation. That's just an example, and translation is going to influence your understanding of that passage. You read the book of Revelation in the King James, and you're thinking of a candlestick made out of wax, set on a little stand, and that was not the picture. It's not a huge thing, but that's what we mean. It, it contributes. So all of the sociological things related to the people of that day. How did Mary and Joseph go about 75 miles, and in Mary's case, a pregnant, probably nine months, how did they get from one place in the northern, in Galilee, to Bethlehem, where Christ was born, about 75 miles? How did this pregnant woman travel? Well, yeah, probably on an animal. And that's how people got around. So that kind of enhances. You, you can appreciate what Mary's going through, if you, those of you that have gone through pregnancy. What would it be like to travel in that way? <laughs> yeah, scary. I mean, very scary. These are all the sociological issues. Economy comes into play. Different denominations of money and ways of money. And just... Prices, pricing, issues related to economy. Joseph and the famine, that was an economic issue. God used those economic circumstances to elevate Joseph to a very high position. And remember, God is sovereign over history. God orchestrated those events to bring that famine, to bring about a purpose. That's philosophy of history that we looked at earlier. But it comes into play, and God used the economic situation that uh, Joseph was in to rise him, uh, bring him to that position. And there was a lot of issues related to that. Broader, Joseph had to be in that position to be able to basically save the nation of Israel. So all these things contributed. It's helpful to understand well, what's going on in the economy there. And the economy comes into play. In fact, Economics is a major and huge theme of all of the Bible. The Bible has a lot to teach us about economics and the whole area of money. In fact, Proverbs is full of advice on handling and dealing with money and money issues. And how money and money issues were dealt with dictated economies and economies changed in the different time frames. So these are cultural issues. Much of the Bible is set in an agricultural setting. So to understand the agriculture, how did they raise grapes? What did they do with grapes? How did they process grape juice and the making of wine and all of these issues? These come in because these literal and real situations give rise to imagery. In the book of Revelation, judgment is pictured using the imagery of a vineyard and the stomping on grapes the way they processed it. The imagery is from that agricultural setting and it gives a vivid picture of the squeezing of the grapes, gives the image of what it's going to be like. It's going to be a bloody mess during the Great Tribulation and during God's judgment. It's going to be very bloody. We have image that comes out of agriculture. Jesus used agriculture in his parables, the parable of the four seeds. He uses that analogy because he was familiar. If we're urbanized and city folk and don't have any idea what goes on in the growing of crops, we're going to not have good insight into the parable of the four soils. So we may have to study, well, what's going on here? How, how did they grow plants in the first century and what were farms like and that sort of thing. So this is a big part of what goes on in the Bible. So the agri- uh, the agricultural aspect, that's culture. Religion is a big thing. 
Huge. False religion starts from the very beginning and takes different forms. Now, there's some things that all false religion has in common. All false religion is a system of works. It's one thing that's in common. But each one is different. Each one has its own its own distortions, you might say. You need to understand the Egyptian religion to really understand what's going on with the ten plagues. You'll have a superficial understanding. You'll understand that there's a conflict between Moses and Pharaoh, and God uses these ten plagues to break Pharaoh, basically. But there's a lot more going on. If you understand the religious system of the Egyptians, you realize that each of those ten plagues corresponded to some of the major gods of the Egyptians, and what God was demonstrating that he is the one sovereign supreme God that all false gods really are no gods at all. And he's de- demonstrating this to the Egyptian culture, and he's basically destroying the religion of Egypt. The children of Israel, first commandments are not to have any false gods. They were ingrained and they were raised in the Egyptian religious system. And what God is demonstrating there is that you need to abandon your upbringing and you need to believe only in the one true God that brought you out of that. Unfortunately, the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, but they took Egypt with them. What did they do? They began to worship a calf, which was one of the main gods of the Egyptians. You had a question? Right, the sun disk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. God was demonstrating He is sovereign over all of these false gods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, He obscures the sun. That was one of the main gods. The Nile was like the blood system of the gods, basically. The Nile was huge, and there was a god over the Nile. God turns Nile into blood. Yeah, every one of them correspond to... uh, Yeah. So if you understand the religion of the Egyptians, that gives you a lot of insight into what's going on in uh, the ten plagues. The main plague was which one? Yeah, the death of the firstborn. What this does is it wipes out the dynasty of Egypt. The Pharaoh was the the main god of the Egyptians in terms of what people could identify with. Pharaoh was a god, and his first son was the next Pharaoh. God says, I'm going to wipe you guys out. So religion comes into play. Legal issues... And by the way, we have a an entire philosophy of an, an entire legal system in the Mosaic Law. But legal issues in every period are an issue as well. And it comes up in every culture, in every situation. Architecture, I already mentioned upper rooms and those sort of things. Gates, for example, using another example, gates were extremely important. In the Old Testament, you have a lot of talk about gates. A gate of a city, obviously, was the access into the city, so it was kind of a point where you either came in or went out of a city. Very important. So gates were built, and archaeology has given us a lot of detail concerning how these gates were constructed, particularly in Old Testament times. You can see they were defensive, but You have mention of people meeting at the gates, the elders meeting there. That was a public area because it was kind of the most important part of the city for a lot of reasons. And it seems like decisions of leaders were made in that location, probably because of that was a central place of location. So architecture comes into play. Walls, how did they build their walls? Again, archaeology, it gives us a lot of information. You remember Rahab? Her house was where? Specifically, it says in the wall of Jericho. You might think, hmm, how could you live in a wall? You're looking at the wall here, six inches wide. How does that happen? Well, if you understand not only the size, significance of walls, but a lot of outer walls of cities 
you have a wall that was 15 feet wide, plenty of room to have living space in between, and a lot of these big walls also served as residences or buildings of, of sort. The wall itself was defensive, but it was also utilized for other reasons. So architecture, different architecture. This is a cultural issue. Military, obviously lots of wars in the Old Testament. How did they battle? How did they go into battle? References to different ways that men killed each other. (laughs) And different strategies, military strategy. You can see I gave you one military strategy that uh, dealt with the conquest. So the whole issues of military enter into play. Even in the first century, you have centurions. Who are these centurions and what what are they all about? Some of them were converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on? What were they like? Uh, What was the situation in the first century? So these are issues of culture. That's the cultural principle. So we have looked at the linguistic principle. We've looked at the contextual principle. Context, context, context. All meaning determined by context. Linguistic principle. God designed us to communicate through language and built language into man, so that's important. Historical, I hope I gave you a biblical perspective on history. Real history is really what God is doing in the universe. So if you understand what God is doing in the universe, you understand its importance. And everything in the Bible is tied to that history. And the Bible was written over time, 1,500 years. Remember, we talked about that, historical. And we looked, probably not as important as linguistic, contextual, and historical, but important all the same, the cultural principle. And next week, we will begin, and by the way, I'll give you all the rest of them. We won't spend as much time as we did on these four but I'll give you the rest of the 15 that are on that sheet that I passed out. Next week, we'll spend considerable time on the metaphorical principle, a very important principle as well. Questions? I can see very well the adhesion to knowing all these different segments to the learning process, and you hold on to it a lot better. Yes. All this, all these aspects. Yeah, and these are the things that you want to look for in passages because they come into play and they'll help you to understand them. That's the bottom line. We're just trying to understand what God tells us in his word. And these are the things that help us. These are the things that bridge those gaps that we talked about in our introduction. These are the things that help us to move from the 21st century and to backtrack into the, whether it be Mosaic time or first century time or whatever time, And now we can put ourselves in that culture and understand what's going on there to better understand what God was talking about to those initial readers. And now that I understand what God was saying to them, I can communicate that to an audience in our culture. Let's spend some time talking about a metaphorical principle. This is very, very important. We refer to the grammatical contextual method as the literal method of interpretation, but when we speak of it as the literal method, we don't mean literal to the extent that it omits entirely the use of non-literal material or metaphorical material. So there's a metaphorical principle that we could state, interpret, according to appropriate metaphorical conventions. And what we mean by that is there are well-established, well-known metaphorical tools or devices that are very common in every culture. We utilize metaphor in our culture. So it would not be unusual to see it in other cultures as well. The Bible is actually full of metaphor. Metaphor is a very useful tool in communicating ideas. So it's not unusual that we would find some of these metaphorical usages in various biblical passages. So let's take a look at different kinds of figures. 
Let me read a quote. This comes out of Zook's book. G.S. Hendry says the following. He says if, quoting, if asked what has been the most powerful force in the making of history, I should have answered figurative expression. That's quite a statement. It is by imagination that men have lived. Imagination rules all of our lives. The human mind is not, as philosophers would have you think, a debating hall, but a picture gallery. So we think visually. Some of us more so than others. He goes on, remove the metaphors, i.e. figurative expressions, from the Bible, and its living spirit vanishes. The prophets, the poets, the leaders of men are all of them masters of imagery, and by imagery they capture the human soul. End of quote. So imagery, metaphors, metaphorical language is extremely important and valuable in attempting to communicate, and the Bible certainly utilizes metaphorical language. There's a helpful text, it's an older text, E.W. Bullinger wrote several years ago a book that is still useful today, several centuries ago in fact, Bullinger's Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. It's over a thousand pages and in it he gives over 800 examples uh, just to illustrate the various types of figures of speech that are utilized in the Bible. And most of them we utilize in our culture and has been utilized in other literature as well. So it's an extremely useful volume. I have one myself. It categorizes over 200 specific categories of figures that he isolates and then he gives these, actually I said 800, 8,000 illustrations. Just the table of context is 28 pages long, where he has an extensive, detailed table of context. point I'm making here is figurative language is very extensive in, in Scripture. Well, what is a figure, or what is a metaphorical device? A figure is simply a word or a sentence thrown into a peculiar form different from its original or simplest meaning or usage. A figure is simply a word or a sentence thrown into a peculiar form different from its original or simplest meaning or use. We speak of word pictures. In other words, speaking or communicating in a way that it creates an image in our minds so that we understand more fully. A very common one that we're familiar with that uh, creates an image in our mind or a picture, uh, John 1.29, when, uh, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. That's a figure of speech. That's uh, metaphorical language. He was not referring to a literal lamb. He was referring to a person. He was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he describes him using a figure because that figure brings to our mind a lot of associations that uh, tell us something of who Jesus is. And in that context, the historical context there is amongst Jewish people who had sociologically, here we have the sociological principle, a whole history of, of many hundreds of years of sacrificing in the temple a lamb on various occasions. Now, today happens to be Yom Kippur. So, in historical times, the Day of Atonement for Israel was a time of sacrificing lambs. So, this is coincidentally Jewish Jewish holiday. But the Lamb of God, obviously in that context, referred to the ultimate sacrifice and in the Jewish mind, all of those associations would come to mind when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says he's the Lamb of God. Or at least it should have brought to the surface all of those thoughts. 
So that's what figures are. So they convey, they convey literal facts. That's why we call it the literal method of interpretation in picturesque or out of the ordinary ways. So we interpret them literally, I could say, in that you want to find out what is the fact or what is the idea that the author is trying to communicate. Just because it's metaphorical, that does not give me the liberty to read into that figure something that the original author did not intend. That's what we mean by literal interpretation as it pertains to figurative language. Why do we use that? Because we do it all the time. We do it unconsciously. We use figures of speech. For example, you might say to someone, well, your argument doesn't hold water. What? Argument holds water? (laughs) How does an argument hold water? Well, it's a figure of speech. We use it all the time. We use metaphors, we use similes, we use all kinds of figures of speech. Why do we do it? Well, it adds vividness, it uh, creates mental pictures that give us ideas. Sometimes it might attract attention, or sometimes it causes you to think about it. Sometimes it communicates more than a simple literal statement might communicate. Just like when John the Baptist refers to the Lamb of God, that communicates a whole volume of material about who Jesus is. It brings in the entire sacrificial system. So sometimes figures give us a broader, broad amount of material than other than just a literal statement might, or a non-metaphorical statement. Sometimes it helps us to visualize something that is abstract. It gives us kind of a mental picture. Sometimes it helps in our memory to remember a concept. If we can have that picture in our minds, it, it helps us to remember, so it's it's an aid in retention. And sometimes it encourages us to just think, and to ponder, and to meditate on a certain concept. Well, let's look at some examples. Let's go to perhaps one of the most controversial ones is symbols. What are symbols? And I want to begin with this one because I think it'll set the pattern for all of the others that we look at. And it'll also help us to kind of understand this relationship between literal interpretation and non-literal interpretation. In other words, we will interpret metaphorical language literally. You get that? We're going to interpret metaphorical language literally. Metaphorical language is not literal, but we're going to interpret it literally. And let me illustrate that by talking about symbols. I'm going to give you a variety of symbols, and I can just show you some of these symbols. Now, these are all in our culture but it will help you to understand biblical symbols. In fact, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna make that transition. What I'm going to do is flash some symbols up here. And I'm not even going to give you the context, but I think they're so familiar and so common that you will be able to identify them. Here's the first set of symbols. E equals MC squared. First of all, one of you give me the context. What are we talking about when we use this set of symbols, E equals MC squared. But somewhat mathematical, but it's uh, it's even a more specific context. Can you think of a more specific context? Yeah, we're talking a little bit... Hmm? Absolutely. And we're talking about Einstein's theory, which is in the area of physics. So as you can see, I didn't even spell out this set of these set of symbols for you, but you are so familiar with them from our culture that you can identify them. You know what they are. Now, what we mean by interpreting symbols literally is that we don't have the freedom to make E or M or C or the superscript 2 or even the equal sign. We don't have the liberty to make them into what we want them to be. That's what non-literal interpretation does. It It's eisegesis. It uh, injects meaning that is not there. But when we look at this set of symbols, immediately we know what it means. 
because we we have some cultural background to understand that Einstein came up with a theory of relativity that expressed in mathematical terms using symbols. So E stands for. Do you know what this formulation of it? Because you don't have you don't have a physics background. But basically, E is stands for energy, and what he's saying is. A certain quantity of energy equals, M stands for mass, so if you have a certain amount of mass, times C is the speed of light squared, speed of light is uh, 186,000 miles per second, which is a large number, you square that and that's a huge number. What Einstein basically theorized, and it was proven when we exploded an atomic weapon, this is the conversion of mass into energy. So if you convert mass into energy, only a very small amount of mass does it take to create a very huge amount of, of energy. That's why a nuclear explosion is so uh, devastating. Well, point being, the main thing I'm illustrating here is this is a set of symbols that we are familiar with, and maybe not entirely, but you can identify it very quickly. We do not, we interpret literally. They're symbols, but they're literally interpreted. We can't read into those symbols what we want. Okay, here's another one, and let's see if you can identify this one. A equals pi r squared. Now, give me the context first. See, I'm not even giving you a context here. So if you have a biblical context, it'll help you to understand in fact, that's a key to understanding biblical symbols. Do you know what the context of geometry? Exact geometry, and you had the idea. Area equals pi times what does the R stand for? Yeah, this is this defines the area of a circle. So the area of a circle is equal to a constant pi, three point one four, whatever, etc times the radius, of, so any circle of any radius times pi, radius squared, will give you the area of that circle. And again, we can't make the two mean whatever we want to. It's a superscript, in other words, it's squared. So you've got the context. I'll go through these quicker, but this is a different context. What's the context of H subscript? So I'm using the same number as I did in the first two, but now it's subscript rather, rather than superscript. And if it's subscript, then it has a different meaning. Another set of symbols. Context again. Okay. Chemistry would be the context. And reference to the periodic table in chemistry would define what H stands for and O stands for. Two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen will give you water. H2O. Okay, here's another context, another set of symbols. Trigonometry, familiar with that one? The tangent of an angle, theta, equals the, the y component divided by the x component. This one is dynamics, philosophy, equals distance divided by time. Point being, these are all symbols or sets of symbols. We can't read into them whatever we want. Except this is also dynamics, acceleration equals velocity, the same velocity divided by time. So these are all, these are physics equations. And even the picture of the, the watch there, is that a stopwatch? That's symbolic language right there. Those numbers have a particular meaning in that type of a context, in that circle. And when you have 12 of them, and you have hands, two different hands, you know immediately what those symbols stand for, what those numbers stand for. Again, to repeat, we interpret metaphorical language literally in the sense that we interpret them in the meaning that the original authors intended by the given context that we find them in. So what did Paul intend by using whatever figure of speech? What did Moses intend? What did Isaiah, etc.? We do not have the liberty to do eisegesis with these mathematical and these physical and chemical symbols. We take them as they are intended to be taken 
Otherwise, we we misunderstand them and misapply them. That's what, what I mean by the literal method of interpretation. It doesn't deny that there are symbols there, but it takes them in their intended usage. And that's the case with all symbols. So when we interpret according to the conventions, what that means is there are certain conventions or certain meanings to all of these figurative devices or metaphorical devices. Interpret metaphorical language according to their own conventions. So when we have a symbol, what what are the components or what are the conventions dealing with symbols? Well, generally you have an object. At least when we speak of biblical symbols, you have an object that is the symbol. In the little phrase, behold the Lamb of God, the object is a lamb. Now that stands for something else. And that what it stands for is called the referent what is referred to. So, symbols contain an object and they also have a referent. What is the symbol referred to? This is the convention. And then thirdly, it has a meaning. What's the resemblance between a lamb and that person that John the Baptist was describing? What is the resemblance? What is the similarity? What is the meaning? What is being conveyed? Okay? And in the case of the Lamb of God, the Lamb, which is the symbol, referring to Jesus Christ, He's the referent, and the meaning is, is that this is the ultimate sacrifice that God was preparing the nation of Israel throughout its history to ultimately fulfill the final and ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Now, the cross was not known then, but we know looking back that that was the intent, that somehow Jesus Christ would be that ultimate lamb or sacrifice of God. So those are the, that's the conventions of symbols. Well, interpreting symbols, number one, you want to look for a definite meaning, not a meaning that we read into them. This is a major abuse of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation does, in fact, contain symbols. Look for the particular meaning that John intended in the book of Revelation. In fact, let's look at an example from the book of Revelation. Or some examples. Turn to chapter 1. So the first thing you want to do in interpreting symbols, look for a definite meaning, and that definite meaning is the meaning that the original author intended. Sometimes the Bible itself will interpret for you. Sometimes the Bible itself will interpret for you. There are few symbols in Scripture that are left uninterpreted. And I've exegeted the entire book of Revelation, and there's only a couple in there that I think are perhaps vague, that are left uninterpreted. Now, sometimes the Bible within the same book, interprets the symbols for you. Or, sometimes the Bible, using a well-known symbol from other portions of the Bible, like the Old Testament, some symbols in the book of, from the book of Revelation are understood from passages in the book of Daniel. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, I'll let you read, uh, somebody read verse 13. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context. This is the very beginning of the book of Revelation. This is the very first vision that John has. And first he hears some sound. In other words, somebody speaking to him. And then he's going to turn to hear the person that is speaking to him. And now he's describing what he sees. And his description is in symbolic language. How do we know that? Well, we'll see later on as we read. Because... One of the symbols is interpreted for us. So, do you want to read verse 13? In the middle of the land stands one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. Okay. He refers to a lampstand. Notice also, here's another clue. Look for little clues like this. Next is a symbol. So, the lampstand, I think, is a symbol because when we get down 
to the passage later on, we're going to find out that it's interpreted as a symbol. But now, in verse 13, one like a son of man. What do we call that? We call that a simile. Similes use that phraseology, something like something else, or something as something. So we have a symbol, and we have a simile. Now, we won't read the details, but skip down to the end of the chapter, and in verse 20, you want to read that one? As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay. What's the object in that symbol? The object is what? First, uh, lampstand. Is a, yeah. The object is a lampstand. Now again, you have to go back to your cultural principle. What was a lampstand? Uh, what, what was that all about? What did that look like? And if you look it up in a Bible dictionary, it'll probably give you some photographs of what we found archaeologically a lampstand looked like. But that's the object. What's the referent from verse 20? referring to uh, the seven churches. The seven churches. So the lampstand, seven golded lampstand, are the seven churches. What is a lampstand? In other words, this is a word picture. What does a lampstand do? It contains the light. It bears the light. So it's a light bearer. And what he's basically saying, we have a lampstand equals church. So this is the the object and this is the referent. What's the meaning? What's being conveyed here? In other words, what, what's the idea that is being communicated here? If a lampstand is a bearer of light, then this is the intent and probably the purpose and the main function of the at least these seven churches, at least these that are in view in the book of Revelation, they are pictured as light bearers. And even the idea of a light bearer, in the physical sense, the, the lampstand gave physical, visible light with, you know, packets of photons. But in the meaning, in terms of the church, the idea here is that they were, they are illuminators of probably truth. At least that's probably their intent and their purposes. So, and again, that's the definite meaning. We don't have the liberty of making the meaning of the lampstand uh, to refer to anything else. Jesus defines it for us right there. So when we refer to the lampstands, later on in the book of Revelation, it's going to occur again in some other context. We know what that symbol stands for. It's defined for us. And like I said, there are very few that are left uninterpreted. Some of them come from the Old Testament. Some of them come from the culture. And in this case, this one is interpreted for us, but it also comes from the culture, and, and that understanding will illuminate what the meaning is. Now, be careful, and here's where context comes in. There's a possibility of multiple uses of the same symbol. And an example that comes to mind is a lion is used as a symbol in two different contexts with two very opposite and distinct meanings. In the book of Revelation, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, which refers back to the Old Testament, and it's a reference to whom? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is the referent in the, of the lion there? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus Christ. But... There's a lion that prowls about seeking whom he may desire in uh, James. Is that Jesus Christ in that context? Same symbol, but in a different context with a drastically different meaning. Who is the lion prowling about seeking someone to devour? Satan. Satan, yeah. And that's in James. So sometimes... You might find in Scripture the same symbol or even a similar symbol, but you have to look, what did James intend to communicate? And literally interpret what James intended. 
as opposed to what John in the book of Revelation. So be, just be careful that once you think you have a symbol... Inter- now, this is rare. This is not real common, but uh, just a little caution there. Drives you back to that contextual principle. What is the context of this symbol and what's going on in that context? Make sense? Okay, so those are symbols. Any questions on symbols? Now, that kind of sets the stage. This helps you to... to to see what I mean by interpreting them literally. We're interpreting figurative language grammatically, historically, contextually, or more commonly as literal interpretation. The distinction is there are some that uh, once they find figures, they think it may give them liberty to now read into those figures, ideas that uh, the original authors did not intend. These are categories of metaphorical language. There are some, there are different ones that we might say where comparisons are made. In other words, one thing is compared to something else. You could even put symbols under that category in a lot of cases. But I'm going to separate these out from symbols. I, I wanted to isolate symbols to, to kind of set the stage for the rest of them. In terms of these comparisons, we have what's well known, and these are very, very common in Scripture. We have simile, and I think you're familiar with simile that we don't have to go into a lot of detail. And they're so common in Scripture, we looked at one in that Revelation one thirteen verse. John saw something like a son of man. So, one thing compared to another. Well, you have the explicit identification of that comparison, because similes are explicit in that they utilize the word like or as. First Peter 1.24, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. See the simile? See the comparison? With similes, again, you have sometimes an object and a referent and a meaning. Psalm 1, verse 3, speaking of the godly man, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So a picture, a word picture, an image, that's simile. Those are easy to identify because they are explicitly spelled out as similes. Similar to simile is a metaphor. And the only difference between a simile and a metaphor, technically speaking, technically a metaphor is implicit. It omits the like or as. I gave you that one metaphor that John the Baptist used. Behold, he doesn't say, behold, like the Lamb of God, but behold the Lamb of God. It's a metaphor. It's a little bit vaguer. One thing is compared to another by being spoken of it as if it were the other, without the like or as. Psalm 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd. Very common, very well known. It's not my Lord is like a shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd, a metaphor. I quoted that first Peter passage. It comes out of Isaiah And in the Isaiah passage, it is framed as a metaphor, whereas in Peter, he turns it into a simile. And that shows how similar they are. In Isaiah 46, he says, All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness like the flower of the field. So he uses both a metaphor and a simile. Now, those are easy. Those are very common, and you ought to be able to identify them immediately. So interpreting them, what did uh, Isaiah intend? What did uh, Peter intend? Well, he's making a comparison. He's he's making a a word picture. So you want to see what is the resemblance between men and grass. And then you'll get at the heart of what is being conveyed there. In what way are men like grass? Or in what way does Isaiah mean that men are grass? Well, in the Southwest, uh, you know very easily 
And the situation, by the way, uh, climatologically is not too different from New Mexico in the southwest. So here, if you don't water grass, it turns brown. So you have to irrigate, you have to water. And similarly in the ancient Near East, in one day you might have green grass, and in the next day it it's gone. It's it's very transitory. So we have symbols. We have examples of figures that are comparison, and there's others, but these are the two main ones. We also have figures that involve substitutions, substitutions, where one thing is substituted for another. Let me give you some examples of them. And these are somewhat common. Not as common as simile and metaphor, but they are common. We have what is called personification. Personification. What we mean by personification is to attribute personality to an inanimate or non-personal thing. Something that does not have personality, you're attributing personality to it. An example would be Proverbs 8. Are you familiar with Proverbs 8? What, what does Proverbs 8 deal with? Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't just describe wisdom, but it personifies wisdom as what? Makes wisdom out like what? Yeah, like a woman. Wisdom is described in terms of a woman. It gives a personality to wisdom. So that's personification. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, it's almost like Paul is speaking to death. And he addresses it. He says, O death, he asks death a question, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As if death were something alive as a person. He addresses it. He talks to it. Uh, Genesis 4.10, this is in the context of Cain and Abel after Cain killed his brother. Uh, Verse 10 says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He's personifying the blood, making it as if it's alive and a person speaking. That's personification. Similar to personification, where you have substitution, where one thing is substituted for another, is anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Now, this is a little bit more specific, where we ascribe human form or human attributes to a being or, in some cases, a thing, where you give human, not just personality, but uh, more specifically, humanity. And these are especially common in reference to God, where God is pictured as having human qualities or human parts, even. God is referred to in terms of the face of God or the mouth of God or the arm of the Lord or the fingers of the Lord, the ear of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord. In other words, he he perceives or sees or he, he can hear. Those are anthropomorphisms. I think, now this is a point of interpretation, but uh, it speaks of God as forgetting I think that's an anthropomorphism because if God is omniscient, how can he forget? I think it's just simply uh, an anthropomorphism. There's also what's called metonymy. We use metonymy in our culture. This is the substituting of one word for another word. In our culture, we might say, today the White House decided to abandon its health care plan. Well, does the White House decide, or is the White House a substitute for something else? Did that residence, did that building decide? No. It's referring to the people that work in that building, or the administration. That's substitution, that's metonymy. The phrase that uh, has been, was used in the past, not so much anymore, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now, you pull out your pen and try to stab somebody, or is that a substitution? In other words, the pen stands for something else, right? It's not a weapon, but it's using kind of this imagery of of warfare or battle or conflict. And instead of it being a physical implement, 
it is more powerful in that it can change attitudes, minds, etc. So the pen is mightier than work. Biblical examples, Proverbs 12, 18. The tongue of the wise brings healing. Well, does the tongue do it, or is the, is the tongue standing for something else? The tongue is substituted for what? The tongue of the wise bring, brings healing. What does this tongue stand for? The healing words or the uh, comforting words. It's not the tongue itself, but what the tongue is able to articulate or produce in terms of sound. That's metonymy, where one word is substituted for another. And again, we interpret literally. In other words, you, you seek, and some of them are easier to discern, but we don't have the liberty to, to make these figures of speech say something that the original author did not intend. Some of them are easier to, to discern, but there are some that may be more difficult. Another utilization of substitution is what's called Hindeides. These are not as easy to identify. Hindeides, have you ever heard of them? What a Hindeides is, is the substituting of two terms that are placed together, coordinated together, usually joined by and, but they're joined together to convey one concept instead of two, where one kind of expands the idea of the other or the two together convey one concept. Now, sometimes these are debated as to whether they're Hindeides or not, but sometimes they may come into play. An example that is debated is Genesis 3.16, when the woman is cursed, and God pronounces the curse of pain and childbearing. What probably is intended there is the pain of childbearing. It's it's connected with the vav in the Hebrew or the and. Pain and childbearing. Not two things, but uh, one thing. The pain that uh, exists as a result of childbearing. A particular pain. Probably Hindeides. Structurally, you have two things joined by an and, but interpretively, you probably have one idea conveyed by those two elements. Similar, you have merisms. Now, they're different from Hindeides, slightly different. A merism is when you have two extremes that are trying to convey a totality or one idea or a whole, where the totality or the whole is substituted by two contrasting or opposite parts. I think Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I think what's being conveyed there, in the Hebrew there's no word for the universe. So in the beginning God created the universe, a merism. He gives the two kind of extremes. Now, from man's perspective, that that is closest to him, the earth, and that that is the most distant from him. So, that that is the closest to that that is the most remote and distant to convey the idea of the totality or the universe. Merism. In our culture, we might say, I worked day and night, the two extremes. I worked day and night. Does that mean you worked 24 hours? But you didn't sleep? No, what you're conveying here is that you had a very heavy schedule, perhaps starting in the morning when it was even dark, and perhaps going through the whole day, and maybe even ending when it was dark, but then you went home and you slept six, five, eight hours maybe. But you were, you had a heavy work schedule, working day and night. You had the two extremes. It's merism. All of these involve a substituting of one or two things for something else. But these are common. In other words, these are, in general, except for Hindeides, these are relatively easy to identify. Euphemisms. We use euphemisms in our culture. Can you think of a euphemism? A euphemism, let me define it first. A euphemism is a substituting of a mild or more acceptable or more indirect idea or word for something that is harsher or not so customarily acceptable? Can you think of some euphemisms that we use? Well, in the political realm, uh, pro-choice would be kind of a... A euphemism? 
that's probably a good example. Pro-choice. In other words, you don't want, because it's kind of offensive to say, well, I'm pro-abortion. That's, that's politically not good. Good, that's a good, good idea. No, I'm pro-choice. I mean, who, who could be not, who's not for choice? So it's a softening. The example I was thinking of that I think is used in scripture as well, well, it's used in a different way, but when we speak of the death of someone, we don't say when your dad died, we say he passed away. It's milder. That's a euphemism. Where you're substituting the phrase passed away for the actual death. What is the euphemism that the New Testament uses for the same concept for death? Paul does it. Sleep. sleep. Mm-hmm. It's a euphemism. Where you substitute the word sleep for the idea of death. Death is harsh. Death is emotionally ripping. Where a sleep conveys the idea, well, I'm going to see him again. It's not, it's not so permanent. You see these? And these are all found in, in scripture. Genesis 4.1 is another euphemism. Now the man had, now the New American Standard says, had relations with the wife and she conceived. It doesn't use explicit sexual language because it's too offensive. In fact, more literally, and I think the King James translates it, now the man knew his wife. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's a euphemism. It has the word yada, which means to know, but it means to know in the most intimate of ways, to know sexually. So it uses a euphemism not only in the the original Hebrew, but also in the translations. So that's a whole category of uh, figures. We have symbols, we have comparisons, and we have substitutions. Let's take a break and we'll come back.